Welcome to the Christ Connection Podcast. We are here to help and encourage you to enjoy your adventure with Jesus. I'm your host, Kevin Senapati-Ratna. Let the journey begin. Welcome to episode number 96 of the Christ Connection Podcast. My name is Kevin Senapadira, and I'm glad you could join us today, where it's all about helping you grow in your adventure with Jesus, growing to know Him, growing to uh, live that out in everyday life. And today we've got a good one for you. It's one of our deep dive discussions, and we're going to talk about how to deal with the devil. Now, don't please don't turn it off right now. I know, actually, I told my uh, daughter what the title was, and she said, a little intense. Yeah, I get this. Uh, even the whole idea of spiritual warfare and stuff may seem a little intense, but it's very practical for our everyday life. And so um, this discussion, I think, is going to be helpful for you if you stick with it and begin to apply it to your life. We're not just talking weird stuff. We can get into some really practical things for your everyday life. So hang with me for that uh, in a moment. Uh, First, let me tell you, if you are new to this podcast, uh, you can uh, check us out at ChristConnection.cc, uh, where we have all sorts of resources to help you on your walk with Jesus, to grow with Him, build your prayer life, all things like that. Uh, you can also put in your name and your email address, and I'll send you a four-part video series on how to uh, grow. I think it's four, maybe it's three. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you get a short, you know, three-day kind of four-day thing, uh, helping you grow in your prayer life, how to have an enjoyable prayer life. So you'll want to check that out. Again, ChristConnection.cc. Also, uh, subscribe, follow, whatever the terminology is, uh, where you're a podcast player, so that all the next episodes, and we got some good ones down the, the pipe here, so uh, you don't want to miss those. Uh, you can subscribe there. And I'd love if you would take a moment to rate and review the show after you're done with it, so that we can know what you're enjoying, what you know, we can improve on, and uh, just, uh, it helps spread the word when you rate and review. Some technology thing there. So, uh, but I want to get to today's episode, How to Deal with the Devil. Uh, so without further ado, my conversation with Gary Tyra. My guest today is Dr. Gary Tyra. Uh, he teaches theology courses in Vanguard University's traditional uh, program, the undergrad and grad, and is its school for professional studies courses, which aim to help students experience growth towards spiritual, moral, and ministry maturity. Having spent over three decades providing pastoral leadership for three congregations, he is now devotes himself full-time to teaching, mentoring future leaders, preaching in various churches and writing. He is the author of multiple books, including his latest, uh, The Dark Side of Discipleship, Why and How the New Testament Encourages Christians to Deal with the Devil. His website is garytyra.com. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you, Kevin. I, I, am, I have been looking forward to this for a while because this is a subject that, uh, well, I'm in the process of researching myself. And so when I saw you're coming out with a book, I, I was excited to be able to sit down and talk with you about this. Uh, what kind of led you to write the book in the first place? Well, to be honest, uh, it wasn't something I necessarily wanted to write. <laughs> Um, but I'll tell you what, I, I pastored for nearly 30 years, 28 change, and over and over again, I 
kept having to remind uh, church members, and now as my uh, in my role as a professor uh, dealing with students, I have to remind uh, church members and students, it's never just us and God. There really is an evil one out there because here's what happens. Sometimes uh, folks have a naive understanding of the Christian faith. And then when they run into uh, difficulties, adverse circumstances, they begin to wonder where God is and is he even there. And this is what I call the devil's wedge. He's a master. I hate to say he's good at anything, but he really is adept at uh, driving this wedge between uh, church-going Christians and God who don't understand why God's allowing something to happen in their lives. And they want to just be mad at God about it. And I have to keep reminding them there really is an evil one. And what he wants to do is exploit this to do exactly that, cause people to become discouraged and despondent and to begin to despair and maybe even defect from the faith, which unfortunately, every once in a while, it does happen. So uh, I just know from my pastoral and professorial experience, the importance of people uh, reckoning with the reality of the evil one so as to not be outwitted by him. And um, that's what caused me to go ahead and write the book. Right. And, and a good book at that, I must say. I, I uh, and liked it. I liked the fact that uh, you got past just when we think of spiritual warfare, too often it's about exorcisms and uh, that uh, uh, type of th stuff. Or, uh, you know, even in the kind of spiritual weird category there, uh, uh, so why why is it important to move past that and into uh, you know and the dramatic stuff into just kind of everyday spiritual warfare? Well, I guess I'll say this. First of all, uh, my book focuses on what the New Testament authors actually had to say about spiritual warfare, and that if you really hold true to that, it's going to uh, lead you away from a highly speculative discussion or uh, a sensational discussion. Those, those sell books, but they're not faithful to what the New Testament authors actually have to say. And what I'm amazed at is how much they did have to say about the need to reckon with uh, the reality of the evil one and what he's up to, and to overcome him rather than be outwitted by him. And um, I, you know, I just didn't want to write a book that would sell books. Uh, I wanted to write a book that would help people actually experience what Christian discipleship looks like when we take seriously what the New Testament authors had to say about the reality of the evil one. And it's a huge connection. There's a huge sense in which uh, a fully biblical Christian discipleship really needs to take spiritual warfare into consideration or else it's unfinished. It's imperfect. And since I'm very concerned about helping people experience what I call endurance training, mm, training so as to uh, render to God a long obedience in the same direction versus, you know, not finishing the race or being distracted and, and being sidelined during it. No, I want people to manifest a spiritual, moral, and missional faithfulness before God and someday hear Jesus say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we've got to go there. We've got to talk about the dark side of discipleship if that's going to happen. And I, I love that term. Uh, probably my my favorite from the book was that idea of uh, endurance training uh, in connection with, because like, wouldn't you say that part of the devil's main aim is to get us not to, <laughs> just to give up, uh, to kind of sideline people in, in, in the fight? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, as I indicated in the book, it, he would love to have us not become Christ followers at all. So he's blinding people to the truth of the gospel and the, the presence of and the glory of God that's in the face of Jesus. He wants to blind people to that. He can't always succeed at that. He does for a lot of folks, right? But he, he can't always succeed at that. People become Christ followers. Well, if his first aim fails, his second aim is to so distract us in our faith that we fail to be faithful to the Lord spiritually, morally, missionally. And that way we don't bear any fruit for him. So if he can't keep us from becoming Christ followers, he for sure wants us to uh, fail at being faithful in our, our walk with Christ and distracting us. So as to, again, maybe produce actual apostasy, defection, right? People becoming post-Christians and renouncing their faith in God and saying, I'm over it. You know, I've been hurt and disappointed. And so I'm, I'm over it. Or even just remaining churchgoers, but being uh, non-productive. And at worst, uh, you know, um, complaining so much and being so critical of the church and its leadership that they actually serve to mitigate and impede the, the health of the church. Man, he's, he's wily. He's wily. I hate to give him any credit, but he is. He's wily. And we, but it doesn't have to be that way. And uh, so that idea of endurance, is it kind of connected with Paul's idea of having done all to stand? That basically, Paul's like, if you stand, you you win. Is that? Well, yeah. There's a sense in which uh, that discussion in Ephesians six, Paul's armor of God discussion, where he's talking about having done all everything, you know, to stand. Um, I think though that there is a sense in which we have to remember that we didn't hear Paul's full sermon on spiritual warfare, right? And so he's communicating uh, spiritual warfare and modeling it for the churches. And we're not in those church services. We're reading letters that were sent by Paul to various churches. And so in Ephesians 6, he is recapitulating. He is summarizing all the major themes that he's referred to in the letter. And then he he. Uh, integrates it with this discussion of why this is so important is because of spiritual warfare. So it can make it sound like all we've got to do is just, you know, white knuckle it and hang on to our <laughs> faith. And that's winning. I kind of have a feeling that if we do it right, we uh, are bearing so much fruit for the Lord and encouraging so many other people to uh, endure that we're actually doing damage to the devil versus just trying to squeak by him. You know? <laughs> But, but yeah, at the, at the end of the day, it's critical that we stand firm in the faith. And that's a big theme in the New Testament. Well, and, and kind of going to that idea of you're doing damage to the devil, isn't a Christian who's effectively standing and, a, you know, operating in the armor of God and all that uh, that's connected with that, would be doing damage to the enemy just by their mere presence? Well, of course, uh, we are um, disappointing him for sure. <laughs> we are, uh, you know, causing him no joy. You know, we're, we're robbing him of joy because what he loves to do, I, you know, Kevin, I don't think really the devil cares about us all that much. <laughs> you know, I really don't. I think that um, there's some reason to believe that the New Testament authors uh, believed that the devil's envious of the, the love and the concern that God has for his human image bearers. 
And I think that there's envy perhaps involved. And I think though that the reason why they would, uh, the devil and the demonic are all about destroying us if they had their way is because they know it would hurt God. I think they're ultimately anti-God. And for that reason, they're anti-human flourishing. They don't want us to flourish. They don't want us to succeed in pleasing God because they don't want God to experience the joy of that. They don't want Jesus to experience the joy of saying, well done, good and faithful servant, you know, with a smile on his face. And so that's the reason why I think that they would love for us to either be just non-productive uh, problems or actual um, dropouts. Yeah. But it's not about us so much as it is about sticking it to God. So yes, Kevin, if we hang tough and render to God a spiritual, moral, and missional faithfulness, that drives the devil crazy. Now, you try to balance the idea of understanding the devil's schemes, but not getting distracted by, uh, by going down that path too far. Or, or uh, Can you talk about what that means to you with that? Well, I'm thinking about Karl Barth's famous uh, remark that the devil only deserves a, a quick, sharp glance, you know, a, a brief, sharp glance. He was concerned that we not become experts on the devil and overly systematize our understanding of the devil. He didn't think the devil deserved that kind of credit or that kind of attention. Um, I get that. I, I say in the book that I don't think we could be uh, erring, though, when all we're doing is trying to understand what the New Testament authors had to say about him, which is ironically quite a bit, right? Now, they don't go into huge detail. There's not a full uh, systematic theology of the devil provided us in the Bible, right? But there are, is enough information for us to do what we need to do, which is to um, not be outwitted by him and indeed to cooperate with God in minimizing what the devil, the pain and suffering that the devil is actually producing in the world, right? So um, I don't want to glorify the devil, but I don't think ignoring him is the is a, an option either, which some people want to overcorrect and suggest, let's just, let's just ignore him. No, the, the, the New Testament won't let us do that. But neither do I want us to um, be obsessed with the evil one, right? So I'm trying to find that balance that I think the New Testament authors uh, operated out of and recommended for their readers. And I want to expose contemporary Christians to this because it really will make a difference in the quality of our discipleship with Christ and uh, whether or not we succeed at it. I, I, I agree with you. I think uh, too many Christians either go to one or two extremes, either they're uh, they're kind of into this kind of weird, I, I use weird, but I mean, it's just kind of uh, all the fanciful things about spiritual warfare and uh, stuff that's not necessarily even in the Bible, but kind of the popular teaching of the day, or they're kind of like a person who goes in the middle of a battlefield and sits down in a chair and pretends like it's not <laughs> not happening. <laughs> would you Would you agree? <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. All right. You talk about uh, Mark chapter five, and I thought it was just a great picture uh, about the demon possessed man and what it teaches us about the goal of the, or what, what does it teach us about the goal of the devil from that passage? Well, I use that passage sort of as a paradigm to illustrate what I think the Bible as a whole tells us. And that's the impulse of the devil and the demonic 
is the destruction of the host. It's the destruction of people. Again, not because he cares about us. He cares about what our self-sabotage and what our uh, destruction does to the heart of the Father who cares deeply about us, right? But I use, uh, for example, the story about Jesus and the Gadarene demoniac. <clears throat> Jesus comes to the shores of Gadara there, and he's confronted by this demon-possessed guy, right, who's up in his face, screaming and slobbering, right, frothing at the mouth probably, naked, we're told. Um, he can't be controlled by family and friends. They've tried. He won't listen to reason. He's beyond anybody making any kind of sense or headway with him. He keeps running away from them, breaking free of any kind of relationship, any kind of accountability. He is literally living amongst the tombs, not just figuratively, symbolically embracing death and darkness. He's literally living in the tombs. And then we're told this interesting detail that he's in the practice of cutting himself with sharp stones. The guy is self-sabotaging one decision after another, but because he bears the image of God, I suggest, the devil's desire to get this guy to off himself takes a while. Well, what happens when Jesus casts the, the legion of demons into a herd of swine or pigs? They immediately end themselves, immediately run off the cliff. And that just strikes me as the impulse of the demonic is the destruction of whatever the host is. If it's a guy, they're, they're slow playing him and, and it takes a while, but they're doing it. And he's self-sabotaging and he's either going to kill himself or act out in such a way that somebody else has to, has to use so much force that it kills him. And this happens in the newspaper every day. People who either kill themselves through their self-harm or act out in a way that causes others to have to put them down, right? And the devil delights in that. He's a, a, he is a murderer. He is bloodthirsty, again, because he knows how that hurts the heart of the father. This is also, I think, supported in Mark 9, just a few chapters later, where there's another story. Jesus is, has come to a, a, a discussion between his disciples and this guy. And he says, what's going on? And the guy says, well, I brought my son hoping your disciples would cast the demon out of him and, and they can't do it. Jesus, I think, is sort of frustrated at that point. He says, rolls his eyes. He says, okay, bring him to me. And while he's coming, he asks the father, so how long has he been like this? The father says, since he was a little boy, uh, the demon keeps causing him to throw himself into the fire or the water so as to destroy him. That's the biblical text, so as to destroy him. So you put these together and it seems to me that we have a hint of what the devil and the demonic are about. If they could have their way, we would uh, kill ourselves or act out in such a way that we would be killed. Um, that failing, they are happy, I think, or content to have us just make one bad decision after another, cutting ourselves with sharp stones, being our own worst enemy, addictive behaviors that are self-destructive. I think that there's a sense in which some people are going to need more than just some counseling. Some people are going to need more than just a good talking to. Some people, for them to stop self-harming, it's going to require some prayer and fasting on the part of people around them and getting the Lord involved in confronting uh, the presence there. It's about as close as I come in the book to talking about exorcism because the book's not a manual for exorcisms. It's a curriculum for endurance training. 
But this is something that um, if we're looking at what's the devil's deal, it is about causing us to uh, hurt ourselves because of the way that affects the father. Well, and that opens up our idea and our mind to realize that everyday things, self-sabotaging activity uh, happens in not so dramatic ways. And so I love your point there is that uh, your self-sabotaging uh, behavior, you know, your sin behavior in general is not, <laughs> you might need to look at your source of where that's coming from. Absolutely. It's not the spirit of God that's causing us to act out in ways that harm ourselves, that are anti-human flourishing. The devil is anti-God, first and foremost. As a result of that, he's anti-human flourishing because we matter to the Father. We matter to God, right? And he's anti-truth. Jesus said he's a liar and the father of all lies. So if we're not careful, we will give ourselves over to lifestyles that in the moment seem... Uh, understandable and uh, uh, desirable. But at the end of the day, if they're sabotaging our functionality, our ability to be whole people who love God and love others as ourselves and, and, and are honoring God with the way we live our lives, then it's not the Holy Spirit driving that. It's, it's something other than the Holy Spirit. And so I'm just trying to raise awareness, Kevin, that get people to, to look at their lifestyles. Even something as uh, benign, perhaps, as what I refer to as the hurry sickness. It's still an addictive lifestyle that causes us to be so busy and in a hurry that we're not really living in the experience of God's love for us. We're too busy to, to, to experience that, right? And therefore, we're not passing that love and grace and mercy on to others. And yet we're we're naming the name of Jesus and professing to be Christians, and yet we're not very nice people, and we're, we're so hurried and harried that we don't have time for anybody. And I think it's only the evil one who is delighted at that. And so again, I'm trying to raise awareness, and that's not the only addictive lifestyle way in which we can cut ourselves with sharp stones. There are all kinds of ways, but yeah, if the reader would, would read chapter two and say, okay, how am I cutting myself with sharp stones? How am I self-sabotaging? Man, I would just be so delighted if the book would help them to say, I need to take this to the Lord. I need to actually ask the Lord to fill me in a fresh new way with his spirit so that I can not be played by the evil one the way I'm being played right now. Right. Which I, I love the fact that you're, you're challenging people not just to come to a realization, but if you're going to endure, you actually should do something about it and uh, engage, work with the Father to, to, to win a victory there. Uh, kind of shifting that way, you know, what kind of starting points, I mean, obviously read the book, but uh, uh, what kind of beginning steps would you give the average Christian to win at spiritual warfare? Any starting points you'd give them? Sure. Well, first of all, we have to reckon with his reality. Again, that we have to nuance, we have to, to dis, be discerning here. This is not about becoming obsessed with the devil, but it, neither is it about ignoring him. We have to remember that he's real. And we have to, uh, second thing I would say is, recognize that something I discovered in my research is a whole lot of these 231 references to the devil or the evil one or whatever, however he's referred to in the New Testament, these hundreds of references to him, many of them, when you look at the context, 
you, we find that his schemes, methodoia in Greek, his schemes, his methods, is to come at the core components of our Christian discipleship. Worship, our experience of worship, our experience of, of nurture being taught and, and uh, edified in, in the body of Christ, our experience of community, our experience of mission. So another big step in the book, part three of the book is saying, can we recognize how that to the degree we give ourselves to these four discipleship dynamics, worship, nurture, community, mission, not just one or two of them, but all of them, that's key. It's got to be holistic, right? And some Christians aren't holistic about it. You know, they're into worship, but not necessarily learning anything, or they're into learning like crazy, but they're not into to mission, right? No, we've got to be into worship, nurture, community, and mission. And I argue in the book, there's uh, a theological, real, theologically real experience of this, meaning, let's say prayer, for example. It's one thing to pray to the idea of God. It's another thing to actually converse with God, the Father. It's one thing to pray at God, just bombarding him with a bunch of gimmies, you know, give me this, give me that. It's another thing to to bear your heart before the Lord, pour out your heart, and then, uh, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, right? And then to actually sit and listen and let God respond so it's real conversation versus just a monologue, right? So that's just a theologically real uh, kind of praying that can happen. The same thing can happen with worship. We're not just singing songs. We're actually experiencing the presence of Christ. In nurture, we're not just listening to sermons. We're actually experiencing Jesus speaking through this person to me right now. What am I going to do with this? I can't just sit and listen and leave and forget. I've got to become a doer of this and not just a hearer of it because I sense the Lord uh, really calling me out right now or loving on me right now, right? Community. It's not just pies and social, uh, pies and coffee socials that should be Christian community. It's prayerful agreement together such that we sense the Lord Jesus there in the midst with us, leading us, guiding us, helping us make critical choices, and uh, enabling us to keep growing through the support and accountability that we're experiencing together in a small group, let's say. Uh, mission. Man, we've got to really identify what our mission is and recognize that the devil wants to come at that the same way he did Jesus, which is to tempt us to get off, to go off mission, right? And we're not going to let that happen. We're going to stay on mission. And so you do all of these things, and I think that drives the devil crazy. Then I go on to talk about, you know, yeah, the uh, armor of God discussion and, and the, the prescriptions there for that Paul gives us about how to stand firm and uh, do damage to the evil one. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say at the bottom, in the, uh, the bottom line is we can be proactive. We must be proactive. Ultimately, I call it a lifestyle spirituality that the Lord wants us to cultivate. And when we cultivate this lifestyle spirituality, we not only make it impossible for the devil to have his way with us, but we also make it possible for us to hurt him in a way that robs him of the ability to make uh, inroads into to the lives of other people. And I love, I love that framework because it's so practical and it's so not necessarily what we think when we think how to win at spiritual warfare, uh, where 
uh, kind of reminds me of the verse, you overcome evil with good, uh, that there's just that practical nature to uh, how we walk and talk, you know, that just being, uh, even the, the gospel of peace is uh, just being peaceable people, uh, bringing the shalom of God to wherever we're, we're going uh, is doing spiritual warfare. Uh, and so I love that framework that you bring. If a pastor is trying you know, reading your book and uh, trying to think, okay, how do I, uh, how do I bring that to my uh, congregation? How, how deep do you think uh, the average, cause you were pastored for 30 years. Uh, uh, I mean, you probably have a good attendance if you say we're going to talk about spiritual warfare maybe, but <laughs> if, uh, how, how would you, or how have you approached that in the local congregation? Well, you know, the book started out as a sermon series I did decades ago, right? And then I put it aside and I've written uh, seven other books before coming back around to this because it wasn't a book I wanted to write. You know, Kevin, when people would ask me, okay, what's, what's your next book about? You know, I'd say, well, it's about spiritual warfare. And they'd go, really? <laughs> why, why would you want to write about that? Um this wasn't a book I wanted to write. It was a book I felt like the Lord wanted me to write. And so I wanted to be obedient to that. And I did that. But it started out as a uh, sermon series, right? Uh, I think a sermon series is good, but sometimes that's just not enough, you know, for a pastor to say, okay, I'm going to spend some weeks on spiritual warfare. And you're going to call that sufficient? No, it's not because our people are too prone to sit and listen, leave and forget, right? And so I think that it has to be more, has to be multiple inputs. I think a teaching series, it needs, those teachings need to be processed in small groups. You know, people talking together. Okay, what did pastor talk about last week? You know, uh, I'd love to think that what chapter from from Tyra's book did pastor <laughs> preach on and from last week, you know, and I provide some, uh, discussion questions for groups right in the book and so yeah talking together about this stuff is so important i think to becoming doers of the word rather than just mere hearers of it and so um multiple inputs uh a more holistic exposure to folks about it versus just a teaching series but it it probably would begin with a teaching series right now i gotta ask this question just purely for myself. Uh, so this is uh, one of those one of those questions. Uh, when you and near the end, you talk about uh, Job, the book of Job, and uh, I just loved the way uh, you you framed it as uh, Job's Job's growth throughout the book. What what happened? Uh, how, how he started at one place and moved to another place and. I don't know that I'll ever read Job again. Uh, could you you talk a little bit about what you were, uh, kind of frame that for people? Sure. Um, the problem of evil is a perennial problem that a lot of folks struggle with. If God is great and good, eternal and sovereign, then why is there so much pain and suffering in the world he created? For a lot of folks, this is a, a non-starter then, you know, because there's so much obvious pain and suffering in the world. I can't even bring myself to believe that the God of the Bible really exists, right? So theodicy or the trying to 
come up with a, a reason to keep trusting in God despite the pain and suffering in the world is a deal. There are philosophical approaches, uh, but then I think there can be a biblically informed approach, right? Uh, the Bible, the closest thing to a theodicy, I think, that the Bible presents to us is the book of Job. Why do bad things happen to good people, right? Now, some people look at the book of Job and they think the message is God is sovereign. He can do whatever the, whatever he wants with us, and we just need to shut up and take it. And that's the, that's the message of Job. The poor guy, you know, <laughs> he's, he's, you know, finally gets an interview with God and God just kind of yells at him and tells him, where were you when I did this? And can you do this? And if you can't, then shut up, you know, and, 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 and you just take what I give you. I don't think that's the, the God of the Bible ultimately, right? It's the God of some theological systems, this ultra authoritative, <laughs> sovereign, all determining God, but I don't think that's the, the God of scripture ultimately. Um, Another theory says is that the book of Job is just meant to be a catharsis. Here's a guy who's suffering, and I read the book, and I have unexplained suffering in my life, and I see him complaining to God, and I can relate to the way he's complaining to God. I can relate to the way he's firing back at his friends who are saying you must have sin in your life, right? And he finally has an encounter with God, and God really doesn't answer anything. He just talks to him about you know, the world being complicated and the world being involved, right? And this, this message would say that Job says, well, I still don't have any answers, but I guess it's just the way it is. And so I'm reading it as a sufferer and I'm saying, so I'm not alone in my suffering. So there's some catharsis, you know, in terms of my desire to vent at God is, is performed through Job. And, and, and I can feel a little bit better about uh um, misery loving company, right? I'm, at least I'm not alone. I think there's more than that, Kevin. I think what we see in the book of Job is somebody who's uh, described as ultra righteous. But if you look carefully at the prologue and at the book as a whole, he's super scrupulous in his religiosity. He, his religion is about rules and rituals. His sense of comfort before God is being impeccable in the way he obeys rules and observes rituals. What if God wanted to move somebody who's into ritual religion or legalistic religion into a trust-based, love-based relationship with him? What would God do, especially if he's so good at religion? Job was really good at religion, right? Well, how do you get someone like that to segue into a more intimate personal encounter that's love and trust based with God. Well, one way might be to throw him some curveballs. So here's some suffering that Job thought he had his basis covered. It was quid pro quo, right? I do this, you do that for me, God, right? And then God allows the suffering in any case, despite his super scrupulous religiosity. So then Job has these friends who come and say, you must have sin in your life. Job saying, no, I, I've been trying my best to get it right. And the more they call him a sinner, the more he gets upset, not only at them, but at God. He never curses God, but he comes close. He begins to question whether God's really being uh, accurate in this case, and whether he's actually being fair. He begins to feel like God is being unjust to him.
And he complains about that. And he starts boasting about, if God would take a meeting with me, I would come into his presence and I would wear my righteousness like a banner. He would be forced to relent. He'd be forced to recognize he made a big mistake in my case. What Job also does in the course of these uh, back and forths with his friends is he starts cursing the day he was born, which I think is a passive aggressive way of saying, God, you've dropped the ball with regard to my life because here I am wishing that it had never happened. I'm wishing it would have been better if I had been stillborn. Oh my gosh, right? He's not cursing God, but he's getting as close as he can to it. And you know what, Kevin, God has him right where he wants him. It's building to a fever pitch, these conversations back and forth. And finally, Job is crazy, hungry, desperate for a personal encounter with God because nothing less than that will do at this point. And that's when God arrives. That's when God steps in. And the divine speeches can sound like he's just, you know, putting him in his place. But I think it's more than that. I think that God is doing some self-revelation there about his love for creation and all kinds of creatures and his faithfulness as a creator, a sustainer of creation as well as the originator of it. And the implication of all of this is that Job is part of that creation and that God loves and cares for Job. And then the second speech, you know, the behemoth and the Leviathan, the message is you're not going to try to tame either of those creatures. You're not going to try to domesticate either one. And yet you're going to try to put a collar on me, Job. You're going to try to box me. You're going to try to conceptualize me. Not only is that unnecessary, uh, not possible, it's unnecessary because I love you. I care for you. Bottom line is when Job finally gets a chance to talk, he says, okay, okay, I get it. And what's more, it's okay. Because once upon a time, I knew of you. Now I've seen you. Now I've, I know you in a personal, up-close manner. And it's all good. And I repent for my ever having mistrusted you. So what's happened to Job? He's moved from uh, someone steeped in, in religion, rules and, and rituals. Now he's got entered into a new and real intimate interactive relationship with his creator. And it's, it's all good. And that's exactly what I think God intended for, to happen in Job's life. And yeah, the evil ones involved, but, um, He's sort of getting used by the Lord in the process as the Lord, in a sovereign way, brings Job to a new kind of a being before him. And so I tell my students, and sometimes in churches, when I preach in churches, are you going through something like Job right now? Are you wondering what in the world is going on? First of all, it's okay for you to be upset, just like Job was. God can handle that. You know, let him have it. But at the end of the day, know this. It could be that God is wanting to bring you to the next level of a relationship with him that would cause you at some point in time to say, it's all good because you are worth this, God. You are worth this. I love that so much. Uh, there's, there's so much there that I hope that people hear the and hear the heart of the Father uh, there for them, uh, no matter what kind of evil they're experiencing in their circumstance right now. Uh, we can talk about spiritual warfare, but really uh, it's uh, ultimately pushing us back to, to Jesus and what, what he, he came so close to, to, to get close to us. Uh, as we're wrapping up here, uh, any other uh, 
anything you want people to know about the book that we didn't cover that, uh, you know, like people need to know this or just any final asks that you have of the audience before we wrap up? Well, let me say, first of all, that I have a real concern that Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, Paul's uh, armor of God discussion, uh, experts call it the classic spiritual warfare passage. And I think probably everybody's heard a sermon about the armor of God. I'm just really concerned that a lot of churchgoers, maybe most churchgoers, don't really fully understand what Paul was actually calling for his readers to do so as to steal themselves over against the evil one and what he's up to in their lives and overcome him in the process. Uh, so I would just encourage folks to give that passage some more thought. And I'd like to think that my chapter on that passage, I devote a whole chapter to Paul's Armor of God discussion. And uh, I talk there about the heart of a lifestyle spirituality that has spiritual warfare ramifications. And so I think it's worth uh, some time. I would go on to say that I also tell my own story of my dark side experience. I have been made aware over the years that that too is something that a lot of folks can resonate with and can benefit from. There are things we can do that mitigate the devil's ability to push our buttons and to play us. It doesn't have to be that way. We can uh, exercise these spiritual warfare moves. For example, coming near. When the evil one begins to attack us, use that as a cue to come near to God in both praise and penitence and watch what that happens. I can tell you this is a game changer. And then finally, I want to say that I think ultimately we haven't fully processed the problem of evil as Christians. Until we've come to the place where we can not only continue to trust in God in the face of human pain and suffering, because we are better able to see maybe what God's up to in terms of his end game and getting us ready for eternity, right? But I also think that uh, to fully process the problem of evil, we come to the place where we say, what am I going to do with my life here and now? It's not just going to be about surviving. It's going to be about cooperating with God, getting involved in ministries that actually address pain and suffering of people and making a difference in people's lives. Because I think that ultimately is the one of the major ways we can give the devil a headache is when we get involved in real ministries that confront the kinds of uh, behaviors in our world that uh, contribute to people's heartache. And we can do that. We can all upgrade our involvement in God's devil-defeating, evil-ending agenda. Love it. Hey. Well, the book, again, is The Dark Side of Discipleship, Why and How the New Testament Encourages Christians to Deal with the Devil. Uh, and the website is garytyra.com. Uh, thanks for taking the time today. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Enjoyed it very much. Well, there you have it. I hope that was enjoyable for you and very practical on how to deal with the devil. That's what we're trying to help you with so that you can win and not just uh, survive, but uh, do some damage to the enemy's plans and schemes over your life. Uh, if you are looking for the show notes, you can find them at ChristConnection.cc and click on podcast. Again, that's ChristConnection.cc and click on podcast. While you're there, uh, let me remind you that you can uh, put in your name and email address to get that short video series, however long length that is. Uh, 
<laughs> that three or four part video series uh, come to you and we also get a weekly email with the next uh, podcast episode uh, also we'd love to have you rate and review the show uh, it helps us know uh, what uh, is going on with your world and where you're listening from things like that uh, so that is appreciated uh, God bless you and until next time thanks for listening <laughs>